and how God views uh, the murderer, the one who takes that life, the one who uses violence to uh, separate that life from the purposes that God has made for it. And, uh, and we really tried to look at what abortion at its core really is. And what I concluded was that abortion, so much of it, comes down to this lack of restraint. It's this lack of willingness to say, no, this is wrong and it, it shouldn't be done. And at the same time, I did mention something that I think we need to remember all, all the time that we think about abortion and talk about abortion is how institutionalized and how accepted it has become in our society, how clean and easy it has become to do such a thing. And, uh, you know, it, it requires answering the question of when does life begin? And we want to talk about that question today specifically. And we also want to talk about a couple of other things. Really, this lesson, you know, again, how does God view abortion? That's specifically what we want to look at. But we're looking at this concept of sacred life. Life is sacred. Life is something that God has uh, created for a reason and a purpose. And I believe we saw that last week. And again, someone who's holding this sign can be just as offensive and, and uh, ungodly as someone who's holding this sign. And we need to remember this is not just a political thing. And in fact, what I would suggest today is that uh, a political solution to this problem does not fix the problem. When we talk about a national abortion ban, or even what we've seen recently in Mississippi, I believe recently the law that was passed that bans abortion past 15 weeks, those things are not bad, and I'm not saying that, uh, that we should stand against that, but we need to look at God's solution to the problem. Because if a law can be passed, law can also be taken away or voided. So what's God's solution to the problem? How does he view it? Today we want to discuss where we see particularly the concept of abortion in the scriptures. We want to look at some ancient examples. What do we see in ancient times concerning abortion? And then finally, we want to look at some problem questions and solutions, some issues that may pose uh, some, some problems in the ways that we consider these things. Looking at abortion in the scriptures, when you really think about it, there's not much there, is there? Uh, but the Bible does seem to suggest that life begins at conception. In Psalm 139, and verse 13, this statement is made, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. That God himself formed our inward parts. He made us. He made us fearfully and wonderfully. We know that we're among uh, the most, if not the most, advanced creature that God has made. We're able to reason and consider things in a way that animals really cannot. But in this uh, psalm, we see that it's very clear that, that God made us. And, and if God made David in this way, we must understand that, that we're made in that same way. Another statement in Jeremiah chapter 1 
and verse 5. In the context of the Word of God coming to Jeremiah, and it says in verse 3, this came in the days of Jehoiakim. Um, it says in verse uh, verse 4 of Jeremiah 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So in that sense, God formed Jeremiah with a particular purpose. And I think for him, at least, God knew he was going to use him as a vessel for the message that he brought to his people. And so what I would pull from these two uh, passages are that God knows us before we come out of the womb. God has some relationship with us. He knows who we are. And because of that, I think we need to avoid uh, concepts. I, I, I don't think we need to just say we can't use the term, but terms like fetus and things like that, we know that's a dehumanization concerning the issue. And so we need to be careful about those types of words. But the Bible does seem to present that, that life does begin at conception. One interesting passage is in Exodus 21, in verses 22 and 23. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband uh, imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine, but if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. And he goes on from there, eye for eye, and so forth. Um, now, I say here abortion was condemned among God's people. I'm not sure I could uh, uh, prove outright that this is an aspect of abortion here. But this is uh, what, what su suggests, and in, in fact the Septuagint specifies that the baby is the one that's receiving the harm that follows. And so there is an aspect here that, that maybe perhaps God himself is making sure that this life is cherished, this life is, is cared for. And we're going to be very careful, he's saying to his people, about a woman with child. Not only in the Old Testament, uh, but I think in the New Testament we have aspects of this. And many of the early church fathers, as we might say, wrote strongly against the practice of abortion specifically. You can look in the Didac, you can look in the writings of Basil or the writings of Augustine. Very clear condemnations concerning abortion in those writings. Now, I'm not saying that that is authoritative or anything like that, but again... Sometimes the church fathers can help us kind of see, well, what was the, th the thought at that time? And so just some things to think about there. There's really just not a lot there in the scriptures concerning abortion, but we need to remember that and keep in mind that, that, the, that God seems to show us that life begins at conception, and when we decide to end that life, uh, it, it seems to be a problem. Now, in ancient cultures, uh, you can see among ancient empires for example, and this is this was really interesting to me. The Assyrians, one of the most violent, uh, awful peoples that you could ever find. You know, just look up what they did to their prisoners, look up what they did to people that, that crossed them. A vicious people. They had a grisly punishment for the woman who aborted her child. And I'm not going to go into the details, you can look it up for yourself. But it's interesting to me. They wanted to protect the life of the unborn. Similarly, uh, evidence suggests that the Roman Empire 
uh, either socially discouraged or punished abortion in some way. Now, the motives of both of these empires I don't think were entirely pure. I think typically the idea was that every child, every male child especially that dies, that's a soldier we could have used. And so I think that was the primary motivation. But it is interesting to note that, uh, that, that there are points where we see abortion uh, very much discouraged and punished in ancient societies. Um, now, the, here, here we have examples that we want to look at, at concerning what I would, I would say is abortion in, in quotes. Uh, mainly because we see in Exodus 1 the uh, Hebrew midwives being commanded by Pharaoh to put to death uh, or allow the, the males to die. In uh, Exodus 1 and verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shifra and the other was, uh, name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Of course, if you read through, you find that the Hebrew midwives uh, basically did not uh, follow what Pharaoh had commanded them and uh, held on to those lives as best they could. Uh, Stephen makes mention of this before the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, 19 where he says, This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they, may, they might not live. Similar case with Herod. In Matthew 2, we see that Herod uh, decides to put to death all the male children in Bethlehem. He's trying to stop the, the spread of the Messiah. We won't go there, but... You know, this in itself was a fulfillment of prophecy. And again, I know this is not abortion as we think of it today, but think about it. You're ending the life of one who God cherishes, who God put there. And uh, so just wanted to go through some of those uh, examples. Now, uh, let's get to the main point, I think, of, of the lesson today. I want to look at problems and solutions. Um, What's the main thing that we typically say to people uh, concerning the actions that lead to a baby? Well, we tell them abstain, don't we? And we can look at passages like Hebrews 13. We might turn there. Hebrews 13. Again, we're looking at what's the answer to abortion? What, what is the alternatives? What are, what are the alternatives, uh, plural, that we might find? So Hebrews 13 and verse 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, what we tell people is that this is just, there's a certain place for the action that brings about babies, right? And the thing is, we could just leave it here. We could tell people, hey, you just need to abstain, you know? And people say, well, what am I supposed to do if, if, I, if I get pregnant? Well, you know, don't, don't get pregnant in the first place. Well, let's be realistic. How many in our society will actually do this? I don't think many. I don't know. I don't have any statistics. I don't have any figures to throw at you here. But we need to be realistic. The world will always be worldly. 
The world will always have these physical desires, and many are going to give into that temptation, especially those who have not been taught any better. I mentioned last week, there are so many people in this world who are completely ignorant, who are untaught concerning the nature of marriage, concerning the nature of uh, a number of things, of course, but, but what God says about these things. We have to accept that there is no perfect solution except what God intends and gives. And so what I want to say to you this morning as we sort of wrap this up and think about these things is that I believe that God has a case for the concept of adoption. I know this isn't going to be a big shock to y'all. Um, you know, we're very familiar uh, with the journey of adoption, I really would call it. And I'm not trying to be facetious with that. But I, I do want us to look at, at one passage. In Malachi 2.15, um, God is using the coupling of a husband and wife to talk about uh, the loyalty that he expects of his people. And in, in Malachi 2.15, but he says, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For a long time, I thought this passage was just basically saying, listen, if you're going to get married, uh, you know, if you can get busy making kids, get busy making kids, right? And, you know, that's a very simplistic, I think, look at this passage. Because that, you know, think about this. What is, what is the real goal here? The goal, I believe, is godly offspring. Old King James says a godly seed. He seeks a godly seed. And so I don't think this is just about the physical, the, the, the physical aspect that brings about a child. I really believe in my heart that what this passage helps us to understand is every child is intended to have a home that rears him or her toward godliness. Every child. Now, notice, I'm not saying the word deserves, right? Every child deserves a home. I'm saying every child is intended to have a home that points them to God. A friend of mine, Sam White, said something really interesting when we visited them over in Alabama recently. He said, you know, regardless of what I do, I could be the best father in the world. I could do everything right. But no matter what I do, I'm raising kids that are going to be sinners someday. Sinners that need Jesus. It doesn't matter how well I teach them. It doesn't matter how far I go in trying. They're going to be sinners someday. And they're going to need Jesus and they're going to need God. Just like everybody else. And when I think about that, it really helps me to understand that God not only wants us to live, but He wants us to live to be like Him. When we use that term unwanted pregnancies, we need to remember that no child is unwanted. God wants all of us. When we think about the term, you know, I think this is a misconception when people say you know, they gave up their child for adoption. It's not giving up a baby, but it's ensuring that that child is provided for physically and spiritually. Again, I don't think it, it, it should shock anybody that I feel strongly about this, but of course we know 
most children are not going to have this blessing. There is no perfect solution to abortion except what God has put together. You know, institutional brethren understood this problem in the 50s and 60s. Let's just admit that. They understood that there was a problem, but they simply constructed an apostate solution for it. They looked around and they said, well, what are people doing about it? Let's do what they're doing. Let's do what the world is doing. We know that was the wrong solution. But there are solutions today, right? There, there are ways that we can do these things. There are ways individually that we can ensure and help that children go to homes that, that are going to raise them up to be godly. And I would suggest that if you oppose abortion, if you know that abortion is wrong, the next logical step is to support adoption. What do we do about abortion? Outside of telling the people that have these children, you better grin and bear it and raise that child. That's the only other solution that I know of, brethren. I, I don't know. The only other solution I find is adoption. And I, I, when I say adopt, it's not necessarily that you adopt, but that you only find a way to support adoption. We know there are ways to do this. We know that there are uh, options out there. Y'all know I talk about sacred selections, and that's an important thing for us to think about uh, as individuals. And when I mention adoption in the following statements, I do want you to assume that this adoption is the type of adoption that, that takes a child into a home that God wants children to be raised in, a home of Christians. And so it is the most effective answer for when a woman can't take care of her baby. Uh, someone brought up some, some questions uh, for us to consider, and I, I don't have them up here, but you think about the young woman who is taken advantage of. A 15-year-old girl, perhaps. What happens if she gets pregnant? If, if you were her father, how would you feel? You know, there, there are fathers out there, I'm sure, that might feel like, well, you know, go ahead and abort the baby. You're not ready to take care of it. You, you... Again, in that situation, the only other, to me, the only other solution than adoption is the parents raising that child, right? And that happens. But the interesting thing to think of there, too, is that if the parents do that properly, that's still adoption, isn't it? Something to think of there. Adoption is the best solution, I think, to that situation. Uh, the older woman who already has a multitude of children and cannot pro financially provide for the child that's coming in. Well, I, I think, again, in that situation, adoption is the best solution. So, I, you know, I don't want to necessarily camp out on this, but it's just a lot of things that, that we need to consider here. That, uh, that God intends for us to have godly offspring, not just in our families, but in our congregations, among us. So there's an obligation here. And I want to look at some basic passages that, uh, you know, we won't go through every single one of them, but I, I would suggest that the Bible shows us we must plead for the fatherless and for the widow. We must stand for those that cannot stand themselves. And I would suggest in our society that that is absolutely true for children. For children that, that uh, don't have any choice in the matter. That's why abortion is so wrong, by the way. <laughs> you know, 
There's no situation that excuses it. I'm convinced in my heart. There's no situation that excuses killing a child. Yes, the 15-year-old girl did not have a choice. She didn't have a choice. And it's a horrible thing that happened to her. But the baby doesn't have a choice either. And so I would suggest the 15-year-old has more of a choice than the baby. Exodus 22, 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 24, 17, you shall not pervert justice, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. Job 6, 27, yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Psalm 68, verse 5, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. Let's be like God. Let's be a defender of the fatherless. Let's look upon those that do not have any defense and defend them and help them. And just a couple of passages, and we might actually turn to these. This is just a smattering, just a small number of passages here. But Isaiah 1, again, this is one of God's major criticisms of his people as he's taking them into exile. What is he pointing out about his people? Isaiah 1 and verse 17. He tells them, learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Look in verse 23. Look at the situation where they're in. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards, they do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. You see, when we're so focused on ourselves, we're so wrapped up in our own lives, we don't see those opportunities to help. I know most of us remember James 1.27 from, from heart. Pure and defiled religion, undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is our business. And I would suggest as far as being Christians, it is our our duty to do all that we can. Can we fix the whole problem? Can we solve every solution, every every issue? No. And let's be realistic about that. We're not going to go out there and change the world. But God is not asking us to change the world. He's asking us to do all we can. You know, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and uh, the disciples are saying, you you can look back in Mark 6 for things like this. The disciples are saying, these people are tired. Let's let them go home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. And they're saying, well, Jesus, okay, do we need to just assemble a whole bunch of money and just 200 denarii, go go find enough bread for these people? What do you have, Jesus says? What do you have to help with? We need to think about that because that speaks to us as well. Do not neglect justice, mercy, and faith as the Jews did. Matthew 23, 23. You neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. 
In many ways, that's what we need to make sure that we're not doing. Don't neglect the life that God has made. Do everything you can to help. And especially when you think you can't help, think hard about ways that you can. Again, I didn't mean for this lesson to be about adoption, but again, I don't see any other true uh, answer to this. But I'm certainly open to discussion and consideration about these things. If you're not a child of God this morning, we encourage you to think about becoming one. If you haven't died with Jesus in baptism and water baptism for the remission of your sins, uh, you're still a sinner. We encourage you to think about the fact that Jesus died for your sins. And Jesus died for our sins so that we don't have to deal with death in this way anymore. 